I'm joined today by Catherine Scanlon, whose extraordinary book, Kick the Latch, has perhaps caused more excitement and interest amongst our booksellers than any other novel published this year. It's the testament of Sonia, a horse trainer, a race tracker, who tells her story in taut vignettes, each of which contains more person, more world, more life than a dozen pages of most contemporary novels. And what a world it is, bruising and brutal, where physical pain and severe injury are commonplace, a world shaped by violence and addiction, a tight-knit itinerant world of trainers, grooms, jockeys, owners, gamblers, racing secretaries, and of course, at the centre of it all, those enormous, enigmatic, empathetic beasts, horses. A work of fiction based on interviews with a real-life Sonia, Kick the Latch thrums with a kind of hyper-authenticity, cracking open a closed society, placing a marginal life at its centre and provoking a profound resonance between Sonia's very specific struggles and joys and our own. Catherine Scanlon, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thanks so much. Um, I was trying to decide how to structure this interview because um, for me there are sort of two angles of attack to this book. So there is there is Sonia and the, the character of Sonia, the personage of Sonia we meet in the book. And then I guess there's what we might call sort of the project, the form, the sort of the... I guess, the founding ideas of the book. And I was trying to decide which one to talk about first. And I think I'd like to go in with the project first, because I think once we start talking about Sonia, she's such a compelling presence that we might run out of time and never get to talk about, about the, the sort of the, the founding of the book. Now, in the afterword, you write um, the Kick the Latches based on interviews. And you say, I transcribed those recordings and use them to write this book, which is a work of fiction. Um, now, that will immediately pique the interest of readers about where you draw the line between fact and fiction, between the real Sonia that you met and the Sonia that we find in the book. So to kick off, would you be able to sort of introduce the project to us? Tell us a little bit how you met the real Sonia, why you started interviewing her, and when you got a sense that it would be a book and this kind of book particularly. Sure. Um... So I met Sonia through my parents. Um, she's an antique dealer now, and my parents are as well. And I talk to my parents pretty often on the phone. Um, they live in Iowa, and I'm in California. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, you know, uh, maybe like six or six years ago, I think, um, my mom in particular started telling me about this person that she had met um, named Sonia. And how Sonia, whenever she saw her, she would just start telling stories about her life. Um, And then my mom would tell me those stories. And she was just sort of, my mother was just sort of insistent, like, I think you really need to meet this person. Uh I think that this is um, just someone that you would really like to talk to. And so um, at one point when I went home to visit my family, I arranged it so that Mm -hmm. I could meet her at a flea market where she was set up. And, you know, my parents kind of arranged that meeting for me and, you know, said that I, I mean, asked her, you know, if she, if she would want to meet me and, (laughs) and talk to me. Um, and I asked her if I could record our conversation and I just, it was more just like, um, being interested in hearing this person's story. And, um, I didn't have any idea of Mm -hmm. the book or anything you know I didn't know that I was going to do anything with it but it was more just sort of like a you know interested to meet her and then I hadn't ever really I had recorded you know I'd done recordings in the past of like friends and family members but it wasn't something that I had ever done like in a deliberate way like to write a book you know um and I also didn't know that our conversation was going to last like four hours I just thought I'd be talking to her pretty briefly but it ended up being um 
sort of like this all afternoon conversation and and by the end of it I felt like I just kind of had a a vision I guess or mm-hmm. I, I sort of just could see the shape of this kind of book that I might write and it felt to me like um uh sort of a continuation of the impulse that I had for Ognine Fog mm-hmm. um and so I was thinking about how this could be a really interesting way to like keep working with this sort of like found speech or found material, uh-huh. but in this case, it would be with a living person instead of, you know, someone who was yeah, yeah, yeah. passed away. So for listeners who haven't yet read Ognine Fog, so this is a, a diary based on a diary that you, you found at an auction mm-hmm. and that you sort of constructed a novel out of almost, almost sort of through kind of the cut-up technique. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so there's this, definitely this interest in sort of, in, I guess, kind of this bridge between the the real the found object and the uh the novel mm-hmm. um one thing i was put in mind of um was in an interview actually when i interviewed rachel cusk quite a few years ago and she was talking about the sort of the um the pursuit of writing novels um and she said she was talking about her trilogy and she said the very first thing that had to be disposed of was the author trying to convince the reader that they've not written the book you, you know, the author makes their narrator a neuroscientist and has to spend 500 pages showing how much they know about neuroscience. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to waste anybody's energy on that game. Exactly. And that's <laughs> seemed... Cause so, so this project is very different to Cusk's project. Yeah. Um, but it also seems to be grappling with the same, um, I guess, tension um, with with the novel. Is, is, that, is that something you identify with? And is that sort of... Does that underlie some of your... Um, your reasons for preferring to work with with this kind of found material. Yes, absolutely. Um, and actually, I was reading Cusk's Outline Trilogy like right before I started working oh, on this book. And at one point, you know, I was trying to figure out how to construct this book. And at one point, I did sort of consider, you know, kind of like a, a Cusk strategy because mm-hmm. I, I think that the device that she uses in the Outline Trilogy is really excellent. You know, like she... Um, the narrator sort of disappears, um, but is still present. And so I was thinking about, okay, can I make myself this character who is very just marginally there sort of receiving this story, you know? Um, But then I decided that actually what I really wanted was to try to recreate the immediacy of Mm -hmm. being delivered this testimony, you know, um, from this individual and that that felt like the most direct and honest way to Mm -hmm. to write this book, to just eliminate me. (laughs) And does it in a similar way with, um, because I think of Cusco, I also think of writers like uh, Sheila Hetty or Carlo Mm -hmm. Vickenauskart, who all seem to kind of run up against the same problem with the novel and seem to go about sort of trying to get around that problem in different ways. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be almost sort of a third way or a fourth way to uh, to get around it, which isn't Cusk's way, isn't Hetty's way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to be, would you say you have a sort of a, sort of a moral question perhaps about the, um, the let's say traditional, the classical work of fiction? I think for me, it's just really difficult to, uh, like right now I'm working on two different manuscripts that are, you know, possibly novels in this uh-huh. more sort of like you know traditional sense or or in the sense of uh like a similar style to short stories that i've mm-hmm. written that are in the first person you know but um i think that i always run up against this question of sort of like uh why should this exist uh-huh. does this deserve to exist um i have a hard time with the third person but 
I think that, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, yeah, it seems to be, um, definitely a block that, uh-huh. that I have and maybe I'll work through it and maybe I won't, but yeah, using this found material, I feel like uh-huh. has definitely been a way yeah, for me yeah. to, to <laughs> circumnavigate it. And before we leave these questions of form behind to an extent, um, I suppose the question would be then why novel and not, for example, oral history, which has its own sort of very, um, noble and very kind of defined existence mm-hmm. why why was the mm-hmm. the material that Sonia provided you with something that would be sculpted into a novel rather than mm-hmm. fitting into that particular form? yeah I mean I think it certainly could have been made into you know uh, an oral history you know kind of like a studs trickle mm-hmm. book or you know something like this um but I think that I just am interested in you know, I'm still interested in the novel form. Uh-huh. I'm still interested in fiction and in narrative. And I, um, it just seemed to me like a, 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 an interesting challenge to try to, and kind of like a fun and, you know, possibly like slightly mischievous way mm-hmm. to, um, to write a book. Yeah. 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 And one of the things, um, that at least I felt as a reader and I would be surprised if other, if other readers didn't feel is the almost a sense of immersion you get immediately when you when you when you open the book into into Sonia's world like there's I, I think it comes with the authenticity of the voice and and some of the I guess the um, specific details that we meet in the in the early pages was this a world the world of race tracking some a world you were in any way familiar with before um sort of uh, my father owned racehorses when I was mm. a kid and so I actually have memories from being really small and being like outside the racetrack at Uh night watching horses run you know similar to to Sonia had and then I also grew up with horses um I just a large part of my childhood was spent with them and also Mm. in a similar way to Sonia Uh um and so there was some of like the language of the care and the racing Mm. that I was familiar with but but some of it you know I hadn't ever heard before and and it was really interesting because of that you know I guess did did that give you a certain sort of comfort when you when you did sort of inhabit the the personality of Sonia that that you weren't sort of you didn't have to learn everything from scratch I guess yeah I think so probably Mm -hmm. yeah and one thing that surprised me and this is obviously coming from a, a British perspective um and probably um slightly sort of with various hang-ups about class but like I remember when when some of our booksellers were first talking about this book I think my my first reaction was kind of like really a, a book about horse people because for me and I think for a lot of British people particularly the idea of of horse people is about the the upper classes it's about fancy. the rich it's very fancy yes. exactly and that is not completely absent from this world and I think we'll come mm-hmm. on to it but one of the things that really surprised me was just how gritty i guess mm-hmm. the uh the uh, the lives of a lot of people involved in this um in this world were mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i don't think i would have been interested in writing uh. a, a book about <laughs> fancy horse racing you know necessarily even though as you say it does make an entrance in, uh, into the book but i think um it's funny you know this kind of horse culture and the way that it does straddle class um Mm -hmm. there's a you know there are very different experiences of working with horses and being around horses uh um and I think that mine you know was sort of like more like Sonia's and it's involved with a lot of um just kind of hard work and also like just close you know 
physical care of the animals mm-hmm. um, and this kind of thing. And that's, yeah, that's what I'm... Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It also made me think, in the way that I've heard people talk, for example, about um, Jane Austen's books, um, for example, is that like, often when you read them, at least for the first time, you don't really get a sense, because it's not really mentioned, of this entire sort of support network of the kind of the poor and the downtrodden that are keeping these rich families in the the lives to which they've become kind of accustomed. Mm-hmm. And it's it maybe think actually probably within the, you know, the fancy horsey world that, as I conceive it in the UK, there's also this kind of, let's say, like Sonia layer mm-hmm. of people doing the, the hard work and the yeah. bloody work. And these people yeah. aren't. Are rarely centered in the in the, in the in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did it surprise you though the level of um, let's say physical toil involved in being around horses and racing horses? Like as some as, a, as somebody who doesn't have that that past experience, yeah, I, that was one of the most striking things was just the the sheer bloodiness mm-hmm. of the of mm-hmm. the activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very intense to hear these stories from her. Um, I mean, I knew something about, you know, these this sort of like underside of of racing, mm-hmm. you know, before talking to her. But, you know, to hear a first person account of it, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's shocking. given a choice. A few months later, I was back at the track, riding a horse to the gate for a race. Another horse bolted with the jockey on it and T-boned the horse I was on. The collision sounded like a shotgun blast. We all went down. I was at the bottom of the pile. It happened in front of the grandstands. The crowd was traumatized. The medics did CPR. They used the shockers. It was a death experience. They brought me back, but I was in a coma. I could hear every word, but I couldn't respond. Race trackers were coming in and out, talking with the doctors and nurses. Is she going to make it? They say your hearing's the last to go. I thought they would bury me alive. I was given a choice to live or die. When I decided to live, I woke up. Then I was in a lot of pain. I had a lot of injuries, a lot of internal bleeding. I had all but two ribs broken, a punctured lung. I couldn't breathe, I couldn't walk. Later when the hospital sent me home, my racetrack family had to feed me and help me because I couldn't sit up on my own. I was renting a trailer in a court not far from the track, but I stayed next door with Tim Tucker and his wife for the first few weeks. They took good care of me, the Tuckers and some of the other guys' wives too. They'd wheel me out to the track so I could talk to people and get some sun. One time they took me to a zoo. One thing that um, that comes across repeatedly in, in the book is this, um, I guess, the connection between horses and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is something which... Uh, has been it's been portrayed in uh, in film and books in the past, and often I think uh, romanticized mm-hmm. um, because you know I, I suppose often the the relationship between people and animals is something which um, which is used to sort of to to hammer home some sort of metaphor in, in a story mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Was it a challenge for you to kind of to get to get that balance right to kind of to convey the strength? of that connection 
mm. while also not sort of let's say lapsing into the the kind of cliche that that, that we find in in a lot of accounts of of these kind of human animal connections. Mm. Well, I think that the the attitude that you know I sort of like to take was already there in mm-hmm. you know in her stories and mm-hmm. in the way she was telling stories. Um, so I think that it was just sort of my job to, you know, to be shaping and accentuating mm-hmm. like in places that, you know, felt to me to, to get that across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then this was sort of something you felt sort of profoundly from Sonia that even now, cause she's left, you said she's an antique dealer now, she's mm-hmm. left it behind, but it seemed that when reading this almost as if the, the greatest loves of her life were the, mm-hmm. the horses, the, mm-hmm. the strongest relationships did mm-hmm. come. From yeah. the animals rather mm-hmm. than rather than from her family. Yeah, it really did seem like that, and and I understand that. I feel mm-hmm. like I, you know, have also had these kinds of relationships with animals, and they're very powerful. And I think that the human impulse to kind of like, I don't know, just you know, uh, shape our narratives about animals to sort of like either mirror ourselves mm-hmm. or or suit ourselves or use them, you know, for our purposes is is really strong, uh-huh. um, and. Yeah, I think I just, I, I always am trying to write about animals in this way that that doesn't do that, mm-hmm. you know, like that um, as much as is possible, it sort of depicts them as they are without mm-hmm. this kind of like layer of, um, yeah, I don't even know what to call it, you know, um, story making or, uh-huh. or use making yeah. involved. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. The world itself of racetracking, I mean, you said this was sort of a world which you had been sort of in, in some way sort of at least distantly uh, familiar with. Um, and yeah, I got a sense um, at one point, Sonia says something, of course, it's gone about a particular track, I think. Of course, it's gone now. They race motorcycles there instead. Is this a world which, you know, the world that you were familiar with and the world was, that Sonia was familiar with, is it a world that is kind of disappearing in a sense, or is are there sort of remnants? Are there is it sort of quite recognizable? Uh, the world that, that you were in contact with, and the world that Sonia was in contact with, or is it something which is kind of on the way out, and you just, as someone of a different generation, were more in contact with kind of the remnants of a, mm-hmm. a whole culture that, that Sonia mm-hmm. knew. From what I've seen and from what I understand, it's um, shrinking. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like a lot of the racetracks that were around when I was a kid are all gone now. Oh. And um, a couple, was it last summer or the summer before? I can't remember now. But um, I went with my family to Arlington Racecourse in, outside of Chicago, which is where I, I had also gone um, sometimes as a kid mm-hmm. with my family. And it was like the last season the someone bought the track and it's closing down. And so yeah. there's less and less of these sort of live races. And I think that, I mean... To a certain degree, this is, you know, possibly a good thing because um, some of it, I think, might, you know, be due to these sort of um, practices and Mm -hmm. abuses with the animals that have been taking place. And so I think that there's and but I also think that there I mean, it's definitely an enormous difference from like mid 20th century to Mm -hmm. now, like um, like one of the tracks that she talks about in the uh when she was talking to me i looked it up and was researching it you know it's talking about 
opening day in I think the 50s or 60s mm-hmm. and and just how many people came you know and how many people would come to these races all yeah. the time and it's just not something that people I don't know I, I think it's not something that people do mm-hmm. as much anymore yeah um, yeah yeah for for better or worse yeah um probably for better but uh, <laughs> but there's also something you know there's still something really kind of exciting about it and I think that that it, is maybe part of my interest also in writing about this world because as a kid having seen some of it up close it was very exciting to mm-hmm. me and and I but you know it's also very fraught very yeah. problematic um in a lot of ways and so the tension of of those kind of like conflicted mm-hmm. interests I think is something that that's one of the reasons I wanted to work yeah, on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And to immerse yourself in that world and to immerse readers in that world, as I said, that's a sort of the sensation we get as readers. Did you have to research around your interviews with Sonia? Like in the, the sort of so for the, the work that you did on the on the, on her words, you were able to kind of to to kind of deepen and enrich certain elements of the the way this this world of race trackers was presented. Or again, as you you said about a lot of things about the like the animal connection stuff. This was already just in the in in, in the the, the, the same material, the found material that she gave you. I did a little bit, you know, like kind of just what I was talking about with the racetracks, and then also certain terms and things that I wasn't familiar with. You know, there were there were some things that I looked up, but for the most part, I feel like I I just loved having this material to work with that maybe I didn't necessarily know exactly what mm-hmm. she was talking about but it was just interesting from a language perspective and and I felt like I could understand it enough that um like maybe I didn't always need to to know exactly what mm-hmm. she's talking about but then at a certain point going through my drafts you know I did send it to her and and she corrected a few things that you know right. I I had misheard or uh-huh. I had misunderstood um yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And concerning the, the, the interviews themselves, if we can just return to those, would, were you, I suppose I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this as a, maybe like an active or a passive interviewer. Did you have a, a sense when you were interviewing, you said that you weren't necessarily sure it was going to become a book, but were you, did you feel that you were kind of guiding Sonia through those interviews and in order to sort of, I guess, to to touch on certain points and to maybe sort of, draw a narrative from her or was it a more organic sense of kind of the narrative came from the the way in which she she determined to express herself yeah exactly that um i especially our first conversation extremely passive i mm-hmm. i didn't really ask her anything except for at the beginning just you know would you want to talk to me um uh-huh. and she just kind of talked mm-hmm. and but then um and I think our second conversation was like that as well. And and then maybe like the third and fourth conversations, um, you know, at this point I had had been working on a draft already and and realized that there were some things that she had talked about that I would like to know a little bit more mm-hmm. about. And so then I did kind of ask, um, but in a very open way, you know, like mm-hmm. not searching for anything in particular, just kind of like, you know, receiving whatever she wanted to, uh-huh. to talk to me about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and as we get towards the the end of the book, we it becomes clear that she has left this this life behind, um, at least to a you know to a, to a to a large extent. Was it something that you felt like she has 
really left behind or is it still like is she somebody who when you when you meet her do you get a sense of like this was the in a sense the defining experience of her life and even if she's a an antiques dealer she is always going to be be a racetracker it sort of seemed that way to me um just because she's always you know she loves to tell these mm -hmm. stories and she's telling them you know to people and um and i think that she's still in touch with you know a lot of the people from this world um uh, you know, she's like reconnected with mm -hmm. them on Facebook and things like this. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine Sonia on Facebook. That feels a bit wrong. <laughs> she is, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. So I, I, I get the sense that it's still, you know, with her, definitely in, mm -hmm. in mind and spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, what was going to be my last question? But you kind of have touched on it already. Is that sense of uh, her reaction to to the book? So you said you sent her drafts and she corrected things. Mm -hmm. um, has she has she given you any kind of well maybe you wouldn't want to share about any kind of direct kind of response or or reaction to oh, the yeah. book? Does she? Oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that was something. You know, the whole time I'm working on it, uh, it was sort of like at every stage, like, is this okay? You know, mm -hmm. do you like this? I wasn't going to proceed. You know, if yes. she didn't yeah, like yeah, this yeah. direction, I was taking it in and like always kind of like okay i'm gonna try to write this book what do you think you know are you okay with that okay um and yeah and definitely before sending it especially you know before sending it off to a publisher like uh -huh. what do you think okay. Here, here's the book um and she's very excited uh -huh. about it uh she's yeah she's yeah, shared yeah, it yeah. with friends and family and... that's very interesting actually the um because i mean i mentioned um i mentioned uh Knausgaard at the beginning and they're um, I remember from a, a conversation with him when he was talking about sort of how he, you know, would always, you know, it was sort of, it did, it's not that it didn't matter what friends and family thought about what he was writing about them, but there was always this sense of kind of that he would, he would publish the book. Like there was this kind of artistic drive there that sort of, even if it sort of wrecked his life, which it did in, many, in, a, in a lot of ways, it wasn't going to stop the book coming out. But this sounds the way you talk about it with Sonia, that there's a, not only a more kind of collaborative process, but also it seems to you there's some sort of moral stakes that she should sort of approve of and indeed authorize the, the oh, text. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I feel that. I mean, I just, I know her and I care about her, mm -hmm. you know, and I wouldn't want to do anything that would, um, you know, that she wouldn't like in, in you know, writing about her, uh -huh. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems quite an unusual reaction to from from a, an artistic perspective i think i think a lot of um a lot of writers might at least give the impression of being a little bit more sort of devil may care about <laughs> that sort of publish and publish and be damned but there feels uh -huh. a real sort of yeah sort of moral responsibility in your approach in a sense yeah i suppose so. yeah i mean i i definitely know what you're talking about and i think that that's important too mm. you know it is important to sort of like write your experience as you've lived it mm. and 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 maybe people will be upset about it um you know but but in this you know this felt to me like a very special circumstance mm. that um it wouldn't have felt right to me to to just barge ahead and you know take my license and and not get her approval on it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. well a very special circumstance and a very special book uh, kick the latch is of course available from shakespeare and company from our bricks and mortar store, from our website um, as well, or from your local independent bookstore, wherever that may be. Um, Catherine Scanlon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.